Mark your Bibles at the place of Revelation chapter 5. And just uh, put your, your ribbon marker or your bookmark in that spot because that's where we'll be going today. I feel like this message today is such a pregnant message. It's been in development for probably three years. And uh, I feel like just with um, God said it's time. And so I want to bring it today. I'm excited about it. Some of you in the past few weeks have been to the beach. Some of you have been to the mountains. You've taken trips. You've taken to the north and to the south. You've been on journeys. But today, I want to take you on a journey, the most important journey of this summer. Today, we're going to take a journey through philosophy and discover how the philosophies of this world have tainted the lens in which we see God. The philosophies of this world have tainted the lens in which we see God. If that sounds boring to you, believe me, it's not. We're going to see that the message of Christianity has fundamentally altered and changed in the last 200 and 250 years. Now, normally I don't make use of the screens during the sermon. But today I'm going to do that to make note of some terms which aren't common in our language, but I want you to see them and understand what they are. We're going to look at three different type of worldly philosophies and how they've infiltrated the church. The first philosophy that we're going to look at is called the philosophy of humanism. Humanism is a system of thought attaching the prime importance of life to man rather than God. A system of thought, a philosophy that attaches the prime importance of life to man rather than God. Therefore, humanism ultimately says the chief end of man or the chief end of life is to glorify man. Humanism says that the purpose of life is to glorify you. That you become the center of your universe and your betterment is what life is about. Actually, we can find this written in the code of our United States. Who the founders were not necessarily Christians, many of them were deists. And they put that their code was for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is humanism. That we do what makes us happy. Now let's contrast humanism to something defined almost 500 years ago by the Westminster Catechism. Now we forgot about that in our Protestant churches, but this was pretty crucial to the formation of us as Protestants. In 1646, the Westminster Confession of Faith was a tool for churches and families to remember the core doctrines of Christianity. And the first point of the Westminster Catechism says this, the chief end of man is to glorify God. But humanism says the chief end of God is to glorify man. 
Humanism says that God created you for your happiness, but the Westminster Catechism says that God created you for His happiness. Do you see the difference? Humanism puts God as the ultimate end. I'm sorry, uh, Christianity puts God as the end, but humanism puts man as the ultimate end. So let's look at this. In Christianity, we see that the purpose of man, that's the means, is to glorify God. That's the end. Okay? That's what Christianity is. That man is created, the means to glorify God. But humanism comes to the point where it becomes that the purpose of God, that's the means, is to better man. We become the end. So here's what Christian humanism looks like. Christian humanism becomes that the point of salvation is to make your life better. Once humanism invaded Christianity, it started teaching that salvation in Christianity is to make you have a better life. To give you a better quality of life. Is that true? Well, you look at the apostles. James was beheaded at the sword of Herod. Eleven of the apostles died for their faith. Did Christianity give them a better quality of life? No. Look in the New Testament. Did Christianity give the New Testament believers who were chained and imprisoned and beaten and whipped a better quality of life? The answer is no. Where did this philosophy come from? It came from the world infiltrating the church. Everyone's still with me today. You see, prosperity gospel is ultimately humanism. That says God exists to give you what you want. That's humanism. God exists to make you better. God exists to make you richer. God exists to make you healthy. That's all humanism. And in humanism, the gospel became about what Christ would do for me instead of what Christ has already done for me. And instead of salvation being the end of glory in God, salvation became this. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. How many of you have heard that in evangelism? Y'all don't listen to them TV preachers on TBN. So I guarantee you turn on the TV preacher on TV plan, you're going to hear, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. How's that working for the Christians in Pakistan, and Afghanistan, and in India, and in Nigeria, and Egypt, who are in prison for their faith? Is that a wonderful plan? Being away from your family in prison with little food, getting beaten and whipped? No, it's humanism. It's garbage. And people are fed this garbage. They're led like uh, uh, a sheep to Christ, like, like a sheep to slaughter, thinking that their life is going to be made better. And ultimately it's not. And so they leave Christ because the humanist preacher evidently made false promises. You see, if the point of Christianity is to make my life better, then when my life is not better, it causes us to ask the following questions. And I want you to pay attention because if you've asked these questions during your Christian life, You've probably been influenced by humanism. The first question is this. Why did God allow this to happen to me? Why would God do this to me? That's rooted in a belief that God's supposed to give you anything good. That's rooted in the belief that God deserves to better you at all. Second question. What good is following God if he doesn't answer my prayers? Man, I've heard people do this. Man, I prayed for two years for such and such. God never answered it. What good is following God? That's humanism. God is only good if he benefits me. That's humanism, not Christianity. 
Third question, how can I know God exists if he doesn't fix my problems? If God hasn't fixed me, if he hasn't fixed my family, then ultimately, how do I know he exists? And therefore, God's existence depends on his betterment of my life. So God revolves around me and not me around God. That's humanism. And so everything which we relate to God becomes about how he has answered the philosophy of humanism. Has he made my life better? No. Then what's the point of serving him? Has Christianity fixed all my problems? No. Then how do I know it's real? Are more difficult things happening to me now? Yes. Then my life is not better, so Christianity ultimate doesn't fulfill my humanistic purposes. And we wonder why droves and droves of people are leaving the church. It's because they've heard a humanistic philosophy, which is a lie. And they're fleeing from the philosophy of humanism. My friend, the gospel is not that God has a wonderful plan for your life. The gospel is more than likely or not, God has a violent plan for your life, which will include trials and tribulations of many kind, the testing and refining of your faith, the discipline of the Lord, and most things that your flesh doesn't want. It's the opposite of humanism. You see, the philosophies of this world invade not only our culture, but our church as well. And that's only the first point. Humanism has invaded. Secondly is modernism. Modernism ultimately says that enlightenment, do we have that next slide? Enlightenment can be brought about by a series of thought processes. Betterment can be brought about by thought processes. Modernism also says knowledge is the key to power. Because of modernism, which started being prevalent in the mid-1800s, universities, which were created for the purpose of spiritual instruction, began turning away from spiritual instruction and teaching uh, focused on the sciences, the humanities, the philosophies, believing that the more knowledge a person had, the better they would become. The college I went to is a prime example. Wingate University started out as a Christian Bible-based school. And I was under the impression that it was still that way. When I got to college, I found out that now they had merged to what's called a liberal arts college. And that some of the professors that were on staff at the college did not even know it was a Christian school when they came on staff. You see, over the path of time, because of the influence of modernism, the, the purpose of a university turned away from spiritual instruction and it turned to knowledge. It turned to information. And here's what happened when Christian modernism infiltrated the church. Christian modernism focused on the mind and not necessarily the heart. The thrust of modernism became the more we teach the better off Christians will be. Modernism began in the mid-1800s. Interestingly enough, this was the same time that Sunday school was invented. Most of us think that Sunday school is how it's always been. That's not true. For 1,800 years, the church gathered for the preaching of the Word of God and corporate worship. And then because of modernism, they says, well, corporate worship evidently isn't getting the job done, so we're going to start another classroom setting and, and have a teacher instead of a preacher. Now, I'm not saying that Sunday school is bad. I'm saying it's the invention of modernism. 
The word of God is living, powerful, effective, sharpened as a two-edged sword. Sunday school is effective, but we must see that modernism told us that if we teach more, Christians will be better. Modernism also said this, that the gospel can be reduced to a mental formula. If you've ever served in vacation Bible school, you'll be aware of the training which they teach Sunday school workers and VBS workers on leading children to Christ. And here's the current method. It's called the ABC method. I want you to follow. A, admit that you're a sinner. B, believe that Jesus died for your sin. C, confess him as Lord. Young Bobby, do you admit? Of course I do. Miss Sally, do you believe in Jesus? Of course I do, Miss Sally. Do you confess Jesus as Lord? Of course I do, Miss Sally. Bobby, you're saved, man. 3.5 years old, Christian, right? And what we've done is we've taken 66 books of the Bible and condensed it into a formula that a three-year-old can say, yep, I'm on it. And now we call him a Christian. My friend, those things are all true and good. But does anyone question the fact that the most glorious message in all of Christianity has been reduced to a sales pitch? And thousands and thousands of children will be presented this as long as they can agree to a mental formula. Someone will check the box and say, young Bobby's saved. And, and, and the preacher or the teacher will say, Bobby, you're now a Christian because you've agreed to the formula. That's the worst thing we can possibly do. That is an utter tragedy that we would pronounce someone saved based on a formula. Amen? Hold on, you guys. All right, let's get back to work. The worst thing we can do is put the gospel into a packaged formula and say, here it is, do you believe it? Check the box, now you're saved. And now they live the rest of their life with the pretense that I'm saved because I can recite the three-point sermon when the Holy Spirit has not brought a spirit work upon their heart. It's not been a work of God. It's simply been a work of man. And we wonder why 90% of our kids leave the church. Because we've been giving them a, a formula instead of Christ. Do you want to go to heaven? Of course I do. What old Joe on the side of the street don't? <laughs> don't you want to walk the streets of gold? Yes, I do. Do you believe this formula? Yes, I do. Man! Crusade had 17,000 decisions. That's exactly what they had. Decisions, not salvation. Because salvation is brought from God, not man. As a result of the gospel being faithfully preached, I'm convinced that there's many within the pews of the church who are calling themselves a Christian simply because someone else called them one. Well, you're a Christian now. Okay, I'm a Christian now. No wonder we see people getting saved over and over again and they come to receive Christ to accept the formula again. And next year, nothing has changed because in reality, they've never received Christ at all. All they've received is a little hot pocket salvation. You know what a hot pocket is? You get it at the grocery stores, you get ham and cheese, you throw it in the microwave two minutes. Hot pocket. Hot pocket. Right? Man, they're awesome. We've, we've, we've packaged together hot pocket salvation. 
that can be microwaved for two minutes and given in their hand so they can be on their merry way. It's fun-sized Christianity now. It's Christianity that fits in your pocket. And listen, if you didn't take a bite out of it yet, just put it back in the oven next year and it'll warm it back up again. No longer do we have to raise the cow of God's righteousness and slaughter the beef of man's sinfulness. No longer do we have to put the cream in the cheese maker and spend hours churning the cream. How many of you remember mom or daddy churning the cream? Y'all remember churning the butter? How long did that take? Four or five hours? No longer do we have to churn the butter. No longer do we have to milk the cow to get the cheese. No longer do we have to shave the cream off the top to do things with it. No longer do we have to spend six months waiting for the weed of salvation to grow and pick the weed off by hand and thresh the weed on the threshing floor so that the chaff of sinfulness will be blown away. No, we don't have to do any of that stuff. We simply put salvation in a convenient package and microwave it in a formula and we say, here you go, you're a Christian. And when they bite into it and they realize the hotness of holiness singes their conscience, we see they weren't ready for it at all. No longer do we wait nine months for the gestation of a developing spirit. In the womb of God's sovereignty, we simply abort the spiritual fetus before it's developed because of our own pridefulness so we can tell someone how many people got saved at our crusade. That is modernism. That I can give you mental information and you become a new creature. It's not because of me. It's not because of information. It's because of the Holy Spirit which will take the gospel and make a new creature. The last philosophy is hedonism. Hedonism is the ethical theory that pleasure, which is satisfaction of our desires, is the highest good and proper aim of life. Our culture is fully hedonistic. There's no doubt about that. Hedonism says if it feels good, do it. Man, this is the teenage mantra. This is the college mantra. If it feels good, do it. Follow your heart and do what feels right. I always, I can't stand when people say that. Follow your heart. The book of Isaiah says the heart is exceedingly wicked. Don't follow your heart. It's made of flesh. It will lead you astray every time. Follow the spirit of the living God. That will lead us to wisdom. Hedonism says if it doesn't make you happy, don't do it. Now we understand that the world operates this way. This is the way of the will. This is the way of the self. It's ultimately the way of sin. Sin says that pleasure is more important than God's pleasure. But what happens when hedonism creeps into the church? Here's what it looks like. You want to be happy, don't you? Yeah. You don't want to go to hell, do you? No. Well, if you believe this, you won't go to hell. You will go to heaven and be happy. And now salvation has become about me going to heaven. It's become about my personal happiness. That's hedonism. That's my own pleasure. So instead of salvation be about the glory of God and the righteousness of holiness of an almighty God, it now becomes about you believing so you can be happy for eternity. That's hedonism, not the gospel. You say, preacher, what's wrong with telling people that they will go to heaven? Nothing's wrong, but that's not the point of salvation. Amen? The point of salvation is not you going to heaven. The point of salvation is Jesus being glorified in your life. 
and God receiving the honor and glory. Not so you can get a free pass and miss hell. Just this past week, I saw a sister in the Lord. She put up a post on Facebook. She said, I'm so happy that Daddy's in heaven now because he's reunited with Mama. You know what that is? That's hedonism. That simply says that heaven is about our reunited in our happiness. That's hedonism. That's not the gospel. I hate to break anyone's bad news, but we're not going to heaven to see Daddy or Mama. And if we're going to see them, I'm not sure we're going to be there. (laughs) if that's our mentality of why we trusted Christ I'm not sure we're going to be there if we didn't trust if we didn't trust him for his own worth and glory you see let's, let's wrap this up now into one big happy bundle let's look at these three philosophies and see how they are now presented in modern evangelism here's the modern evangelism method God loves you and has a plan for your life. That's humanism. And if you acknowledge this formula, that's modernism, you will go to heaven and be happy. That's hedonism. And now the gospel is the philosophy of this world and not Jesus Christ. Is this shocking to anyone to see this? That it's happened for the last 100 years and invaded the church. And the gospel has become about you. It's really sad, folks. It seems like the entirety of Christianity has been lost. So many are so far off track now. I don't even know if they're going to find their way back. So here's the question you're asking. Why do we become a Christian? Why do we believe in the gospel? Why do we trust in Christ? If it's not there to make our life better, if it's not there to make us happy, what's it for? I'm glad you asked that question. Let's look in Revelation 5. It says in verse 1, This is John speaking. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I, being John, wept much. Because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. And I looked. And behold, in the midst of the throne, in the midst of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamp as though it had, I'm sorry, a lamb as though it had been slain. Having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sit out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp. And bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, 
saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and natures, you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, the elders. The number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and under the Uh, the earth and under the earth, such as these, all I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Why do we worship God? Why do we worship Christ? There is one answer and one answer only because Christ is worthy. He is worthy to receive your worship, to receive your life, to receive your offering. He is worthy, not because of what we get, not because of what He'll do for us, because He's worthy. There will be millions upon millions of believers in heaven. And I don't know if you'll ever see daddy. I don't know if you'll ever see mama or grandma. But you will see Christ. And like the 24 elders, you'll be fixated on him forever and ever. And if that's not your incentive to go to heaven, then you will not go there. And God will give you what you want. He will give you yourself for eternity. And that is a very blim, very dim option. We worship Christ no matter if our life gets better. We worship Christ no matter if God fixes our problems. We worship Christ no matter if our prayers are answered. No matter if He never gives us another thing apart from the work of the cross. We worship Him. And we better continue to worship Him every day. Or we haven't worshipped Him at all. You see, in a few moments, we're going to take part in communion. We're going to take part in the Lord's Supper. There's been some strains of theology through the years that have said, when you take part in the Lord's Supper, you receive grace. You receive power. But my friends, that's humanism. The more you take it, the better you get. We don't take part in the communion of the work of Christ because of what we get, but because of who He is. He's worthy. I'm going to have a simple prayer. And then I'm going to have my deacons come up. We're going to observe communion together. During this prayer, if God's working on you, I just want Him to work on you right where you are. And maybe for 30, 40, 50 years you've been trusting in Christ for the wrong reason. I want to say today, it's never too late. Brother Russell on the soundboard, he shared a story with me this week 
How old was your friend, Russell? His friend passed away, 66 years old. For year after year after year, Russell had shared the gospel with them. A few weeks ago, this man had a stroke. In the hospital room after his stroke, he prayed to receive Christ. Just a few days before he died. It's never too late to trust Christ for who he is. Let's pray, and then our deacons will come. Father, I'm asking you in Jesus' name today. I know this has been a hard message. God, it's been a lot of information. It's been a lot of tearing down and deconstructing things we've heard all of our life. God, I know you're able. You are more than powerful to take even our worst efforts and use them for your glory. God, I pray today that we see your son, Jesus Christ, and his worth, his infinite value, that he is the treasure of Christianity, not anything else we get. He is the treasure. And ultimately, he is not the wedding gift to us, but we are the wedding gift to him because he purchased us with his blood. Father, if there's someone today who's been wrestling with their own personal salvation, we pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, God, that they can walk in new birth, that they can become a new creature spiritually through faith in who you are and what you've done. Bless this time together as we partake in remembering you and your sacrifice. Amen.